You're listening to the Detroit Worldwide Podcast. We highlight the stories of native Detroiters that are doing great things in their community and using their impact across the globe. I'm Marquise Taylor. Welcome to the D. What up, though? Welcome to another installment of Deep Detroit Worldwide Podcast. I am Marquise Taylor, and on this week's edition of the podcast, I had the opportunity to chop it up with a longtime friend, someone I have known for many years. This week on the podcast, I was joined by the one and only Dr. Marquisha Davis, who is a scholar and activist. And most of all, a longtime writer, Dr. Davis, is a graduate of Wayne State University, where she completed her degrees in journalism and Africana studies. In addition to that, she is also a graduate of the University of Massachusetts Elmhurst, where she completed not only her master's degree, but her doctoral degree in Afro-American studies. Currently, she serves as an assistant professor of literature and African studies at the University of Hartford, located in Connecticut. I love this episode very much. It is always good to chop it up and reconnect with a longtime friend. This is a young lady that I've watched grow. We went to undergrad together, worked on some of the same initiatives, including our school newspaper. And on this episode, we speak about many different topics, including our love for music, our love for Detroit, and most of all, our love for one of our favorite artists, the late, great Prince. Anytime I can talk about Prince is a good day on Detroit Worldwide. So take notes on this episode, hear about Markeisha's background, learn about her love and appreciation for literature and just black culture itself. So, without any further delay, let's tune into my conversation that I had with the one and only Dr. Markeisha Davis. All right, this is Detroit Worldwide, and joining us today is a really good friend of mine, longtime friend, scholar, activist, writer, and most of all, Detroit native, Again, really good friend of mine. We went to undergrad together. Known this person for, let's just say, more than 10 years. Yeah. Your <laughs> friend, Dr. Markeisha. I don't know if I want to say your middle name. We'll just say Dr. Markeisha Davis. We don't want to put your whole government name out there. That's all Welcome. right. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to Detroit Worldwide. How are you doing? Thank you. Ironically enough, I'm in Detroit. (laughs) That's wonderful. The timing of this is perfect. (laughs) So, like, thank you for having me. Thank you for considering me. And thank you for doing this podcast. For sure, for sure. You were one of the first people I thought and had in mind when I decided to launch this, is given that you are a proud Detroit native. You represent the D very strongly, very proudly. And also, again, I've known you for many years and just seeing you grow and transition to uh, an adult and just as a scholar and professional has been such a great thing to witness. So thank you for coming on here. I'm honored to have you on here. So Thank um, you. 
So all of that being said, I know how dope you are. Why don't you tell the people how dope you are? Tell people about <laughs> <laughs> who you are and your background. Okay, well, I am a proud alum of both Detroit Public Schools and Wayne State University here in Detroit. I am a graduate of the University of Massachusetts and their Department of Afro-American Studies with my master's and PhD. And currently I am an assistant professor of literature and Africana studies and the chair of the Africana Studies program at the University of Hartford, <laughs> West Hartford, Connecticut. I'm a busy lady, but a content busy lady. So I'm blessed and minimally stressed. So that's all I can say. And, you know, like aside from that stuff, I've, as the gracious host has said, I have been an activist for the past few years. That activism has transferred more so into the educational work I've been able to do. And most recently, I did some summer work as a literature instructor with the Hartford Youth Scholars Program, which is a summer enrichment and mentoring program, or not even, it's year-round, all angles enrichment program for students starting in the seventh grade that follows them through their senior years of college. And it helps mostly low income and also like students of color in the Hartford area of Connecticut. And I think upon stumbling upon that program this year through a good friend who was their dean, it was perspective shifting as far as the ways that I thought about the ways I was cultivated as a young person learning and growing up in the city of Detroit and also where I am now as an academic in higher education. It just made me really see myself and see my own journey through these new young people who are going through something I went through all those years ago. So I look forward to really unpacking that through my writing or even in this conversation in some form because it will come up, especially once I talk about how I was mentored and cultivated over the years. I, I appreciate that. Thank you so much for sharing. I mean, mm -hmm. the, some of the things I didn't know, I didn't know mm -hmm. of the program that you're doing with, you mentioned the middle schoolers and yeah. just the cheer. I, I had no idea. I mean, I know you were doing big things, but I didn't know you're doing it that big. Like that's B.I.G. like Chris Wallace. Did. <laughs> so definitely appreciate you sharing that. Now, one thing about uh, Dr. Davis or Markeisha, because I've known her for a long time, is she was very involved on our campus, Wayne State University. She was involved with the NAACP and other organizations like that. She, I mean, I don't want to get into her background more or less. I'm pretty sure it needs to be started that she'll share, but she was really the type of person that the Migos song, Talk It Like You Walk It or Walk It Like You Talk, whatever the hell the song <laughs> is, but she, <laughs> she put action behind her words and she was the type of person that really lived the life that she said that she did. So again, her background is very interesting and I appreciate her taking the time. So transitioning into that, I was wondering if you can tell listeners about your experience growing up in Detroit. What was that like? Hmm. All right, see, here comes our middle school again. All right, so... <laughs> This summer, I taught the poem Nikki Rosa to two of my classes. That poem is by Nikki Giovanni, who was a well-known poet today. Got her start in the 1960s and 70s during the Black Power Movement. And in that poem, she talks about these different experiences she had growing up poor and Black in Tennessee. And also revealing that besides those things, she was quite happy all around. Like her Christmases were happy Christmases. Her parents fought, but it wasn't the end of the world. It wasn't the end of the family when they did. You know, it was all about love and all about 
making sure that everybody was together. And when I read that poem multiple times in summer, I was like, this is what it was like growing up. You know, like you have those family tussles and you have struggling, you know, within your neighborhoods, you know, within your schools even. But so long as you struggled together, things were okay. And things could and would look up. And, you know, another thing she says in the poem is that she hopes that never will an outsider to her experience have an opportunity to write her story and rewrite her experience. And that was her point of adding all these things to the poem, like saying, like, you know, we cooked in an old barbecue bin, you know, like we took baths together. My parents fought. We all slept in one room, me and my sister. But all the while, we were quite happy. You know, and like no person, you know, she says specifically white people in her particular poem because 60s and 70s. She hopes they never write her story because they'll get it all wrong. They will never understand what it's like to grow up as she did and still have the integrity of self and family intact. And so when I think about my upbringing, it was not peaches and cream. I didn't have any like special programs or, or at first, those special programs or, you know, solely memorable mentors. It was a community building. It was mostly my family who really fed into me, you can do this, or you can do anything you set your mind to, and I'm not going to tell you what that is. You will discover and find that for yourself. And, you know, it was a struggle, especially in those years where you're coming of age and discovering yourself and like your peers in different ways because of puberty and all that. My father fell ill and my mother, who was mostly working part time or, you know, being a domestic for the most part, like staying at home with us, she had to work full time. So like our role shifted a lot. You know, my brother was taking on chores that my father couldn't take on. I was helping get my sister ready for school and all those things. And my father would teach me those things that some people historically or culturally fell on the mother for, like those like domesticated roles, like this is how you cook, this is how you wash dishes and prepare this, you know, clean the house, make sure, you know, things are in order. Like those fell on my father as opposed to my mother. Mm. So I already had this kind of interesting take on gender roles because it surprised me. This is not the kind of mothering and fathering I had read about as a kid mm. or heard about or saw on TV. The roles were literally switched, <laughs> you know, in that case. So like, my model's a little different with regard to like, you know, two parent families than some of my other peers. And I appreciate that. And I still do to this day, even watching them now, it's like, wow. <laughs> you know, and watching my brother and his wife and the ways they take on roles is really interesting too, because he has that rearing as well. And it reflects in the way that they have began to build their family. So coming up in Detroit, uh, rough neighborhood, 4204. <laughs> but well loved, well taken care of, struggled, but you know, we struggled together. And that's what I remember most of all about that time in my life. I like how you use literature first and foremost to set the <laughs> groundwork for your story, the community. Mm-hmm. And it was a quote, and I'm, try- I'm paraphrasing it, but something along the lines that not letting other people author your story you being the author of your story i'm paraphrasing what you said because this is the purpose behind the podcast but not only that i didn't know the dynamics of your family i mean that's you know deeply personal but i Mm -hmm. appreciate sharing that but just the dynamics behind the family you mentioned like the roles the gender Mm -hmm. roles how it was 
different from things that you had read or probably seen to that point. So as a follow-up question to that, like, how did community itself because I know you mentioned you know the upbringing you gave your zip code and stuff how did the community influence you to continue your your education beyond the high school level well (laughs) there was like quite a bit of pressure especially when my dad was uh, working and well like he knew everybody in the neighborhood you know from the people who were well known drug addicts or you know just kind of trying to get themselves together or really like in the middle of dark phases in their lives like he knew them just as much as he knew the you know like the preachers and the you know school administrators in the area and as did my mother so there was an accountability if somebody saw me or my brother or my sister messing up you better believe my parents knew two minutes later (laughs) you know that kind of thing which is something that people say there wasn't enough of in the 90s you know or you know into the present day with our generations today but there was definitely an old school vibe in that neighborhood when we were coming up and like the same thing was happening for quite a few kids on our street like some of them had different family dynamics but there was always that network of like oh I just saw you know Kevin walking down the street knocking bikes over or you know like he broke a window like just you know that network of family members communicating and being accountable for each other's children and so like that dynamic is definitely missed because you know my parents are in a new community my dad still goes back to the old neighborhood and still knows people you know even people who moved in since my parents moved off the street back in 2003 and like in his new community which is largely Arab American he still knows everybody mm. <laughs> you know? so like that matters to him and my mom like knowing who is in their neighborhood knowing you know like their families like what's going on like when they'll be out of town when they'll be back like that kind of thing like that kind of tight-knit accountability that comes with caring about the people in your vicinity you know or people generally and so as far as that cultivated me knowing that so many people were seemed to care i'll say that made me work harder made me focus on those things I set my mind to, like the goals at first were just get A's, you know, be on honor roll. And then it became like win a speech contest, you know, figure out what you want to do when you get older. And then it became, okay, you're going to college, you want to be a journalist. And of course that changed <laughs> over time. But like just this idea of goal setting was like bred in me. Not saying that my parents fed me what I should do and what I wanted to do, but they would ask me, what do you want? You know, and some nights I would just sit down in front of the TV and watch entertainment tonight and pretend to be an anchor. (laughs) And that transitioned into writing. (laughs) Um, And that transitioned into submitting that writing towards something. And my parents just kind of cheered me on instead of saying, you should do this, you need to do that, blah, blah, blah. You know, so it was kind of a gentle pushing as opposed to a kind of cloaked helicoptering (laughs) just hovering over me telling me what to do. Because I was harder on myself than they were on me, honestly. Mm. You know, and I had to check that. I still have to check that. (laughs) Mm. You know, yeah. Seems like family is a vital uh, part of your life. I'm just knowing you personally, mm-hmm. but follow question and please correct me if I'm wrong or maybe just address this question uh, in particular. Are you the first in your immediate family to go off to college and graduate or were other people in your family who um, has set that example before you? 
In my immediate family, in our household, my brother was first in our family. Oh, he was first. Okay, yes. okay, got you. Yeah, he went to college at SMU in Texas, Southern Methodist University. And then two years later, I went to Wayne State. Oh, okay, um, okay. But in my, on my father's side, the first person to go was, I believe it was his brother Willard. And then okay. his sister Cynthia followed him there. Or no, it might have been my dad. He didn't graduate college, though. Okay. Because he went to University of Toledo, and then his younger brother and sister followed him there. Okay. Yeah. So Big Bro set the example for you, and then, yes. as you mentioned <laughs> earlier, that other people from your dad's side of the family had gone, so... Mm-hmm. Okay. I didn't know that until I was an adult, though. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> they didn't really talk about it again. Like, they were completely like, no pressure. You okay. know, just do what you do, do it well. And we'll support. I like the example you use of entertainment tonight, mimicking the anchors and then the right stories and stuff like that. That's dope. Yes, I remember it clearly. (laughs) No surprise how clearly I remember it too, because I was little. I was little, but I remember having the pillow on my lap, pretending it was a desk. (laughs) <laughs> talking back at the TV. Yeah. So you, of course, joked about this earlier. You are a graduate of Cass Technical High School. Yeah, CCO2. So <laughs> graduated the same year, and I'll let you shout out your own school. Like I said, we've had a lot of people on here from Cass. <laughs> Sarcasm implied, but uh-huh. also, so, um, so going to Cass Tech and knowing the reputation it has as it being like a college prep high school, did it influence you to want to go into journalism or was that other things that <laughs> you might have done before? You know, Cass, before everything it gave me, especially those AP college credits. <laughs> I studied business administration while I was there, which gave me little in the form of preparation for becoming a journalist. Mm. You know, there were curriculums that they put you in based on A, probably availability, and B, interests that you reveal having through some survey. I was placed in business admin, (laughs) which meant I took accounting classes and typing and computer programming. Which was, that was fun. I found that very interesting and I was pretty good at it. I was told by my teacher. But, you know, it wasn't writing. It wasn't journalism. So in that effect, I didn't really get the cultivation there for what I wanted to do. Mostly it came through extracurricular programs. Like I was in a group called the Young Poet Society and we did creative writing every Wednesday after classes. We did spoken word events in the city with Inside Out, one of the writing programs in Detroit at the time. And honestly, like I say, like, Cass Tech and no shade to that, but it's just where my head was at. Middle school was where I put the most pressure on myself because I was trying to figure out who I wanted to be. And of course, going through that process and all of the other changes you go through at that age, that was more influential than my time in high school because I was in the Young Educator Society. I was you know, a part of like the student government in some form there, <laughs> you know, like our class president, whatever, those types of things. And I was doing oratorical contests and other kinds of competitive things. And like I said, the pressure was there, but it was mostly me pressuring myself. But okay. in the middle of all that, <laughs> you know, I had me said yes to programs that, you know, kept you after school, like Detroit Compact. 
and wait for Chris Powers. You know, I didn't see the long run impact of those. I was just like, oh, this is cool. And they say they'll give you money for college, whatever. And so by my eighth grade year, I knew I was going to Wayne State. Mm. Four years. <laughs> well, that's dope. Um, by the end of grade grade, I knew I had an additional four years of college from Detroit Compact. Mm. And so, like, Cass Tech was a formality. <laughs> it's, it's like, you have to go to high school to get to those four years. Gotcha. <laughs> and I made some great friends, took some great classes, but, like, the men and women I had and met in middle school, like my band teacher, Mr. Johnson, the Detroit Compact Coordinator. Oh, man, I forget her last name, but her first name was Shen. I want to say it was Evan's last name. And there was another woman... <laughs> Who randomly popped up? I think she was just doing a temporary mentoring thing. Her name was Keisha Heigelberger. And Keisha, that was the first adult outside of my extended family I met with my name. And she gave me a meaning for what the name meant. And she was one of the first adult people to tell me I was beautiful. Mm. <laughs> you know, or period, anybody. And as a young woman, I needed to hear that, and that I was smart, <laughs> that I could do anything I set my mind to. And I kept that. Like I said, she was in and out of my life like that. But I remembered her. And so, like, between those three people, I felt wrapped in support in ways that I didn't or haven't thought about until now, in addition to my family. And so, like, having those influences through school really pointed me in the direction towards college. And as I said, Cass Tech was cool. It was dope. I wasn't as in it as some people were. <laughs> but, you know, academically, it set me up to do well in college. But socially and otherwise informing me as a person, like those experiences in sixth to eighth grade really propelled me mm. to focus and really keep my eye on the prize. Mm. Yeah. I like how you use very reflective way of thinking and just recalling your experiences and the fact that you're able to recall middle school teachers and mm -hmm. know them by name and yeah, I mean, middle school, and we can probably do a whole podcast on this because we're around the same age growing up yeah. in the, the late 90s or mid 90s, going and transitioning to the late 90s. It was an interesting time, especially in middle school. Oh, yeah. All the stuff that we experienced. And um, <laughs> I mean, like I said, we can do a whole podcast episode on that. But I just I'm, I'm appreciative of your recollections of middle school and how it helped to shape you um, into the person that you are now. Mm -hmm. Now, I do want to transition and talking a little bit about Wayne State. That's our meeting place. And of I know course. you did some stuff in the South End, you NAACP. Hell, what haven't you done there? But you did a lot of stuff <laughs> on that campus. So I am curious to know what did community and support look like for you when you initially arrived at campus? Oh my gosh. Wow. It was, <laughs> I have to give credit to my freshman and sophomore year social group. Like the other students I stayed in my dorms with, like some of my good friends to this day. Because I got there and it was kind of like walking into cast all over again, just kind of saying, okay, like we can't just use this as a propelling point to life after because this is where you're told you're supposed to build relationships. You know, we'll see if that happens because high school was kind of like, eh. you know, I have a few people who are really near and dear to me who I carry with me from high school. But, you know, it wasn't like a groundbreaking, like, oh, I'm going to like be your friend forever and ever and ever. And, you know, all of you, this entire class or club, <laughs> like, it was a propelling point that I got to Wayne State and I felt that way. And then I met these kids from 
you know, like the trailer parks and suburbs of Michigan <laughs> from the <laughs> east side. I ain't never been to the east side. <laughs> <laughs> from like outside of the state from outside of the country and they became my tight-knit group of friends and these are people unlike some of my experiences beyond cast tech like we had a small population of non-black students but my friend group like all of us were from somewhere different one girl was persian and her family lived in canada another one was you know, had family in Canada too, but her family was native to Hong Kong. You know, mm. another girl was also black, but her family was West African. <laughs> wow. You know, and like the white kids kind of vary. Like one girl, her mother lived in a trailer park. Like we visited her for dinner one night freshman year. And another guy, his family lived in a McMansion in the suburbs. You know, and we just all came together, regardless of our faiths or backgrounds or, you know, languages we grew up speaking. And like that was really a strong support group for me. That was first two years. And seeing them after we had our friend the first year become RAs and club leaders and, you know, honors students. I was like, I want to do that stuff too. <laughs> and so like I kind of followed them into being an RA and decided to just like take a chance and beyond going to my journalism classes, start trying to write for the newspaper, you know, so I can be about what I say I was about. Because, <laughs> mm -hmm. like, my friends are clearly doers. <laughs> They're not just like, oh, I wish I could, or, you know, I would do this, but it's hard. No, they got out there and did it. So I needed to, like, stay a part of that. And I couldn't have chosen a better friend group, <laughs> you know, in that case, because it encouraged me to step out on faith and really, you know, try to involve myself in this community instead of remaining the wallflower I told myself to become in high school. <sighs> but, you know, and from there it was on, like I kind of, you know, broke off, not broke off from the friends themselves, but like broke off from like our shared activities and then went for the things I cared about, like the NWC, you know, and like getting more involved with student life and looking into programs like the Ronald McNair program that set me up for grad school. <laughs> and it was just, I have to give credit to them for planting the seed, you know, or at least like showing me like how much you could accomplish here at the college level. But like beyond them, like my mentors in the Department of Journalism and Communications, largely the College of Communication or School of Communication and the Africana Studies program at the college really, you know, like set me going forth as a scholar and as a professional. And so like there's so many different things feeding into my experience there that really drove me forth. Hearing you reflect on these things and, you know, having known you for so long and you really, really were able to accomplish a lot. And <laughs> yeah. you really, I mean, you, I mean, I'm being serious. You really were able to accomplish a lot. And if I'm not mistaken, I think you probably one of the few people I know that actually finished in four. <laughs> no, <laughs> it was five. Oh, it well, felt like yeah. four, but it was okay. <laughs> well, you finished in five. That's still close enough at Wayne State. <laughs> yeah. But you know what? I did two whole majors. That's the only reason I took that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't do a minor. I was like, nope, I'm doing two majors. <laughs> because, you know, I can't. Yeah, I mean the fact is, I mean you still finish in a in a timely matter <laughs> yeah. uh, that probably mattered to the university uh, metric wise, nonetheless. But again, you did a lot of stuff, and I do want to segue in talking about first recapping everything. You mm -hmm. get your degree in journalism 
Africana Studies. I know you said you were in the McNair Scholars Program. Yes. What led you to want to continue your education after that? Was it that program or was there other things that factored into that as well? It was a combination. Some students would come and try on McNair and walk out because it was like, I don't want to do this really or... You know, like whatever inspired them not to continue on a pursuit. I did it because I made a great friend working with the Accessibility Services Office, they call it now, on mm-hmm. campus, which helps students living with disabilities. Mm-hmm. And she had heard, you know, different things about McNair, like, oh, they give you like a Palm Pilot. That was a huge deal. At the time. <laughs> <laughs> and you get a stipend for attending these meetings and doing that stuff. And I was like, oh, that sounds sweet. Might as well look into, <laughs> you know, test drive it. I didn't have plans to go on to grad school. Like I thought I would work at a newspaper or, or whatever. But I learned by working at the newspaper that I like to teach writing. Because <laughs> you know, I had a lot of writers whose work I would sometimes have to heavily edit. Mm. Not too many, but like quite a few. And I enjoyed that process of watching them become better writers. And I was like, there's something to that. And for my Black I mean, African Studies major, I was already doing a lot of research writing and being encouraged by my professors in that program to keep writing. <laughs> so I was like, there's something to this. Maybe I should look and see if there's a history or English program I can do, you know, beyond this while I'm considering working as a journalist or I don't know what's going on. <laughs> I'm so confused. And I found McNair through my friend and I signed up and I was in love. I was like, oh, this is grad school. Oh, this is research and conferences. And <laughs> like, I really enjoy this. And the only thing missing from that was teaching. <laughs> so I had all of the like professional development and academia related stuff down but teaching itself was something that I was kind of just dabbling in as an editor and RA eventually and so from there I was pretty about 75% sure I wanted to go to grad school <laughs> but like that summer of the first year of the McNair program I did an internship at Metro Times and the editor-in-chief saw me working on my summer research project and began encouraging me and having conversations about the literature I was studying. You know, so that really like drove it home. I was like, okay, here I am at a newspaper and this editor who I work with is telling me how to do my research and how important it is. (laughs) You know, that's the path I'm taking. And one professor who I won't name (laughs) was really encouraging, was a great mentor and also was one of the most important journalism professors and professionals in the college at that time. And he was even pushing me towards grad school. You know, Mm. wrote several letters for the programs I applied to. Mm. And so like, it was sealed at that point. Like I needed to do this. (laughs) It was beyond just a curiosity. It was a necessity. And my number one choice was UMass Amherst. So that's a good question I wanted to ask you because as long as I've known you, I don't think I ever asked you that question. And I'm just going to be frank and say, why there? (laughs) Well, (laughs) you know, one thing I learned about academia early on is that if somebody has written a book that you use heavily and they are alive, you find that person and you study with them. Mm. (laughs) One of the books I was using for my research was The Black Arts Movement by James Smethers. 
Mm. And James Smethers was at University of Massachusetts Amherst. And not only was he there, but also Steve Tracy, who was a premier scholar of Langston Hughes and the Harlem Renaissance. Um, and you had all of these elder activists who were in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee or, you know, had worked closely with Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Ture, or, you know, were involved in like organizing youth in Chicago or D.C., um, you know, had worked with Malcolm X. So I'm like, yeah, I need to go there. Like these people are all over the period of literature I want to study. And so, like, it was, like, the obvious first choice. I didn't know much about Massachusetts. I didn't know anything about New England. But I knew at the top of my list were, first, UMass Amherst, and second, Yale. Mm. Because, like, that proximity, <laughs> UMass Amherst, and New York City, where a lot of, like, the material I'd be drawing from once I understood how to research and what research was. And so I didn't get into Yale, but UMass, they wanted me. So okay. I got packed my bags and went for better or for worse. <laughs> for sure. And this is not to underscore that experience. I've just always have been curious to know because yeah. let's be frank, you straight out of the D. <laughs> I barely know how to pronounce Massachusetts. Uh, yes. I don't know much about <laughs> it, but the, the time that I did go and um, it was okay. I'll just say that. Yes, it was it okay. Was okay. It was I, okay. I'm like Boston, so <laughs> good on you for saying it was okay. <laughs> yeah, I want to say something else but it was okay hopefully you don't have nobody from boston that's listening but uh... you know if they are they know <laughs> <laughs> but it was a culture shock it was totally a culture shock and i didn't know if i would last that first year i just knew i was still surrounded by books and the people i wanted to study with but socially and living in that space it was hard it was really hard <laughs> But you have to find community. And one thing I learned from that first year at Wayne is that you can find community anywhere with anybody if you open yourself up. And so after that first year and a half, I just opened myself up, <laughs> you know, very slowly, but still, you know, like just made myself available in ways that I was afraid to when I first set foot into that little town with all them cows <laughs> <laughs> and all these people who you know like as a young Detroit woman didn't look like me or if they did looked at me like I was crazy because I didn't have the same accent as they did mm. you know so it was like a really interesting dynamic shift moving to that region of the country okay so you're in that region in the country you go forth and I noticed you earned your graduate degree and then you went on to your doctoral degree as well. Mm -hmm. If you can tell people, what did you study in particular? Because I remember you telling yes. me a while ago, it was a period, I want to say it was like the Harlem Renaissance. I can't remember exactly what, but maybe you can just go ahead and answer for us. So, yeah. curious. Okay. Yeah. Well, I intended to study the Harlem Renaissance, but you know, fun story, everybody was studying the Harlem Renaissance. <laughs> <laughs> you really just looked at the sheer amount of material on that period. <laughs> like when I was doing my McNair research, I was like, there's no shortage of books on Harlem. Like I spent at least $200 on used books, like $5 each just accruing a library <laughs> from the Harlem Renaissance. But not much had been written on the Black Arts Movement, which was also a small part of my project because I did too much 
was trying to cover an entire gamut of movements. It was my first project though, so that's fine. And, you know, my first, no, my second semester of graduate school, there was an option of taking the core course that we all had to take and one elective. And there was a course on the Harlem Renaissance, which I really, really wanted to take. <laughs> Just because I knew so much and I wanted to show off my knowledge, you know, because a lack of humility <laughs> at the time. And then there was the Black Arts Movement. The Harlem course was full by the time I was able to register, so that sucked. But I was like, but there's still this Black Arts Movement class, and I know a little bit, but I don't know enough about this, and I'm curious. And so after taking that class and really unpacking some of my own hangouts about what I was reading and actually meeting one of the artists who was central to that movement, Sonia Sanchez, came and spoke to my class. She was acquaintance of several people in my department. And I asked her about sexism, you know, because I heard it was rampantly sexist and people were just mean to women and, you know, what it was like for her. And she explained it as, you know, like, this movement being a, a microcosm of society. You know, there are sexists in society and abusive people in society, and so there were in this movement. I was like, well, that's a very generous way to think about it. <laughs> you know, at that time, you know, not really taking in the breath of what you said. And she just stopped and said to me, you know, we were all just trying to figure out how to be human and how to be free. And that just shifted my entire academic perspective, the way I looked at life and why people do the things they do. <laughs> And more specifically, why they were writing and performing the things that they were, from books to plays to film to music. Why they were saying, say it loud, I'm black, I'm proud. Why it was a big deal that Superfly in the film got one over on the White Tops. <laughs> you know, like even though he was a drug dealer. You know, like why these things matter to see symbolically for black people at that time. And so like that's what turned my eyes to the black arts movement. It meant something to publicly declare visions of freedom on the page, on the stage, on the silver screen, or, you know, like over the speakers at a house party to people who needed to hear and be reminded of what it meant to aspire to freedom, what it meant to have a sense of yourself as beautiful, as capable, as desirable, as all these things that society had rejected in for so long. So that's why I was like, you know, Harlem's cute or whatever, but Black artists is where it's at. <laughs> hey, nothing wrong with that at all. <laughs> now, I, I did want to ask you, and maybe if you can briefly tell us about what your dissertation was on and or your area of study. Yeah, well, that last passage was what my dissertation was about. It's called Daring Propaganda for the Beauty of the Human Mind. Black critical consciousness raising in the poetry and drama of the Black Arts Movement. And so like really taking what Mother Sanchez said that day and flipping it into an analysis of poetry and drama of this moment are saying those two art forms because they were the most immediately deliverable to audiences, you know, in these Black centers in the United States from Indianapolis to Detroit, Chicago, New York, New Orleans. You know, anywhere there were Black people, there was some manifestation of this movement, which separates it from the Harlem Renaissance. And like they were taking these two particular art forms, drama and poetry, and giving them immediately to people. You didn't have to buy a book to get them. Someone would sit there and read them to you. You know, if it was popular enough, the audience would recite it alongside the poet, you know, or the playwright, like it was a rap song. <laughs> so like these were pieces of art that meant something to the people they were written for. 
Mm-hmm. At some point, you know, and these things culminate in my project and uh, for color, which is something a lot of young women in high school and college still turn to as like a pinnacle project, especially in communities of color or, you know, amongst communities of color at the higher education level. Like they will perform that play and the messages will still resonate, you know, beyond what Tyler Perry does with it in 2010. <laughs> <laughs> you know? But there's still power in that because it allows them to tell their own story and without shame or sorrow. Transitioning and bringing it back to a place that I know you love, the trade. I want to ask you some <laughs> yes. questions on that. So, <laughs> being away from the trade, mm-hmm. how are you staying connected to the city? Like, I know you visit home often I see you on social media. You're at home right now. How have you been connected to Detroit and how were you able to build community out where you were for those many years or still where you currently are now? Wow. Well, for a long time, especially like in my young socializing days as a export (laughs) from Detroit, (laughs) you know, I have friends I could go out and party with or tour the city, what have you. Now, you know, like my sister's very much so entrenched in what's going on in the city. She's worked for the Kresge Foundation. Like she's worked for the Museum of Contemporary Art in Detroit. Now she works for CCS, the College of Creative Studies. And so I keep a pulse on the city through her. Mm. <laughs> you know? And so like that's been my lifeline for now, like somebody approaching her middle ages and not as much willing to like go out and club or, you know, hang out at the river walk or whatever just just to be seen out there like I, I'm not there anymore <laughs> I used to be and it was dope but you know now like learning about what's going on in the city and like you know what's really really going on because my sister has like a pulse on like gentrified Detroit and like old school grassroots Detroit So she gives it to me from both sides and lets me know what the deal is. Uh, So it's been interesting to, you know, like see the city through her eyes, first of all, and the experiences that she's had as an active employee of some of the most prestigious organizations in Midtown Detroit, for that matter. And also like really just kind of venture out for myself based on those recommendations and truths that she gives me. I'm like, okay, so don't go there. (laughs) Check that out. While you're at work, got it. (laughs) And I think one of the most rewarding things I've done for myself this week, anyway, was to visit Wayne State for one of their welcome back events. And this particular one, like, just kind of really made me emotional because it was called Welcome Black, right? Uh, Wow. (laughs) It was their second one. Last year was roughly a hundred people. They said this year it was five hundred. Oh my goodness! And every student support service, every Greek letter organization, every organization that's geared towards the well-being and the wraparound, you know, success of students of color, black students on that campus was in that room. Wow! <laughs> I just took video and I was like, "This is the stuff we dreamed of." Like. On day two of school, they're promoting Black graduation, like the ceremony that started the year after I graduated. Wow. You know, I maybe tapered off a little bit and then came back and went, you know, there's a table for the BSU, something that was a sheet of paper the year before I graduated. <laughs> just wow. like, I was like, you know, talk about like people just trying to do stuff while they're there and like other people just planting seeds and then coming back 12 years later and seeing those things as a full guard. Mm. It was ridiculous. 
I just, I mean, I promise you I wouldn't cuss, but all I could do was say the F word. <laughs> wow. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> what is going on? <laughs> I ran into one of my professors, the only person I knew in the room, one of my old professors. And I was just like, this is just everything. Like, we wanted this so much. <laughs> right before I graduated, here it is. All of it. Like, administrators taking the time out of their day to talk to these kids for an hour and get them ready for the year, get them excited for the year. You know, give them all these different resources that they can take advantage of in a wow. very intentional and targeted way, you know? And it was just beautiful. You are going to make me so emotional. I know, right? <laughs> wow, like, I'm just thinking about everything that, so many memories, and I, I hold Wayne State near and dear to my heart, but just, I'm visualizing everything that you just shared, and I'm like, yeah, you, I don't know what to say. I'm, I'm speechless, but in a good way. Just imagine seeing it. You know, like it was like blackity black, black, black in there. You know, not to the exclusion of other people, but like it was important that that representation was there considering the attrition rate for black students, especially those who graduate from DPS in that university. And like the struggle for retention, you know, for that specific population. And it just struck me that so many people cared. You know, so many people like, and a lot of those people who were getting on that stage and talking to those students were people our ages. People who probably went through their college experiences like we did with very little to no support, <laughs> you know, like with regard to like having very intentional public programs like a welcome black or, you know, administrators and career services talking to you like your family, like you belong there. And it's, yeah. <laughs> It was hey, a lot. It was a lot to deal with. <laughs> it sounded like it was a lot. That's yeah. amazing to hear. Yeah, yeah. I almost feel like we should end the podcast on that note. But no, we got a couple more questions to go. And we are yeah, but that's a strong the, note. It's a strong note to end the It is. It is. It is. But we got a couple more questions I want to ask you. We are approaching the top of the hour. And also, yeah. be mindful of your time. And I appreciate you again being on here. So mm -hmm. another thing that you love besides being Black Besides Detroit, is music. Yes. You love music. We connected on music. We share some of <laughs> our favorite artists. So the question I always pose to people who come on here, I ask them what song best represents Detroit and their opinion. So Dr. Davis, that question mm -hmm. is now posed to you. Oh, man. So had a conversation about this earlier with my sister. I consider Black Milk. Guilty Simpson, Jay Dilla, Trick Trick. Slightly considered Eminem, but he doesn't make me feel nostalgic in the ways that some of the other people do. But my mind and my very soul kept going back to Marvin Gaye. And specifically two songs that show the two sides of Detroit that I am familiar with. The first is Gotta Give It Up, part one. <laughs> you know, that which is just about a party and, you know, overcoming being a wallflower and just really getting out there and enjoying yourself. Amazing. Like, that just kind of reflects all of the good times I've had in the city um, and reminds me of my earliest barbecue jam <laughs> that I recall hearing as a kid playing in my grandmother's backyard. Like, you know, my uncle's barbecue and that song comes on and it's a party. <laughs> <laughs> and the second jam would be Inner City Blues 
by Marvin Gaye, which talks about some of the blight, some of the issues that people are facing or they find themselves in and how it just does make you want to scream over and over again. I can't say how many times I've read headlines from Massachusetts and just <laughs> let off the loudest sigh or even a scream sometimes in my apartment like oh my god mm. like why is this still going on you know and between those two songs he nailed the essence of my Detroit those songs are what almost 50 years old yeah yeah I mean yeah. Marvin is one of my favorite artists and the What's Going On album I can't think of the album with the uh, the other song the first song you just named is on but I know the uh, Inner City Blues What's Going On yep. I mean that's the classic album just not only for black music, but just music in general. And again, Marvin is a, one of my favorite artists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's Detroit. <laughs> for sure. Now, knowing I have you on here, and I know another artist that we share, one of our favorites, and I think I might like this person more than you do. It's debatable. Mm-hmm. But if you had to give me your favorite print song or album, oh. Oh. <laughs> oh, what my. would that be? I probably should have <laughs> gave you that. <laughs> question ahead of time. Wait. They gonna blindside me with a first question. Wait. I'm in, I'm in Minneapolis. I got to. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Ooh, this is, this is really hard. Because, I mean, literally on that new, like, unreleased album they just dropped, they have the Prince version of Sex Shooter. And I mm-hmm. love that. Because I loved it when Apollonia did it in Purple Rain. But, favorite Prince jam ever. Mmm. This is hard. It's hard. Why <laughs> The beautiful one, I have to say. Yeah, the beautiful one. I kind of figured you were going that direction in the back of my mind. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. I won't ask you any more off-the-cuff questions. I just figured, you know, why not ask that question? I'm in Minnesota. Yes. Prince, you know, we share that in common, so I just figured I asked you. Mm-hmm. Alright. I was gonna do like I should like mess them up one of the later ones, but I was like, nah. <laughs> Go back to the OGs. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, keep that with the OGs. <laughs> so I do wanna ask you, we're approaching the you know, last couple of questions I wanna ask of you. What are you currently working on and how can we best support you as a community? Oh wow. I'm currently getting ready to pitch my first manuscript on the Black Arts Movement. <laughs> well, I don't get to decide which press, but I'm gonna send it out to a few like uh, New York University Press and maybe uh mm, I'm gonna buckle down and do Wayne State University Press and you know, like if you are a praying person, please pray. If you are a person who likes stage or you know, like you know, speaks to the ancestors about looking out for your sisters and brothers, please do that. <laughs> because this is, this story needs to be written. And I need to get this story out so I can start writing about things that speak more so to what we are doing currently. Like, I really have a book in me about hip-hop post 9-11. Mm. And I've been thinking about that since high school, actually. Mm. <laughs> or, you know, my early years in college. So, man, so a lot of that is just really like seeking support or people asking like, hey, you know, when's that book coming out? Because that's annoying enough to make me want to write it. (laughs) Or just really like putting out positive vibes for me as a scholar and really just praying for young people, you know, or putting out good vibes for them because, you know, beyond like the kind of wraparound support we try to give them at the college level, if there is that wraparound support, it's hard for them outside of that space. You know, sometimes they have additional responsibilities beyond just being students or teens, you know, or young adults. 
sometimes they don't feel inspired or encouraged to stay in school because they don't have that support. And so like seeing the show that I did of support at Wayne State the other day and knowing what some of my colleagues do in Hartford for the young people they work with are great and inspiring models to keep aligning myself and committing myself to the work of supporting our young people. So if you see a young person struggling, you're a young professional, you know, be a friendly face. You know, don't be the first person to judge them like, oh, you zennials. Or, you know, for the little bit older ones, you millennials, like, you know, no, like, get to know them. You know, these Mm -hmm. are some bright young people. Very bright. You know, smarter than me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) In many cases, like, you know, they are going to effectively build on what we leave them, you know, and what their parents and grandparents have left them and flip this world around. That's what I see in these young people. And I refuse to see anything less because they haven't shown me anything less. So definitely we will do that. That response right there is positive vibes, sending those your way, but also to the young people. Mm -hmm. And I will definitely be on you about that book because I'm just thinking of, (laughs) not that I'm an authority on this, but Essential Albums post 9-11 that really shaped who I was as a person, as a black man, as just a hip hop fan in general. So yeah, that'd be dope. You gotta, ooh. Yeah, and just thinking about the ways that encourage us to think about what was happening politically, you know. And I'm not excluding Kanye West from that conversation, especially those first three albums. Like, oh, what's <laughs> like funny? Crack music, listen, yeah. like, that was a word. <laughs> I mean, as you were talking when you said that, I think yeah, I think his first three albums did pop into my head as you were talking. There are other albums that we can probably talk about offline, but yeah, like... Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Kanye was the man back then. Mm -hmm. It's not even... That's a different conversation for another day. Okay. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Last two questions I want to ask you, and I know that you are on social media. In fact, you are one of the Facebook OGs of social media. (laughs) On Facebook As am I. As am I. But if you like people to find you on the social media space, where can they locate you? Wow, I'm most active on Facebook, so that would be Markeisha Dawn Davis. Or if you would like to reach me on Instagram, that would be at Dr. Davis Uhart. Again, that is at Dr. Davis you heard so yeah like check me out i'm not sure i know you also on linkedin and twitter but i don't think you tweet as much yeah i don't tweet as much and i don't linkedin as much if you can linkedin like other statuses i think there are (laughs) i I mean i use linkedin fairly often but yeah for sure for sure so we'll make sure we get those in the show notes and like i said (laughs) uh, markeisha is one of the facebook ogs as am i so yeah we'll definitely make sure we get those in the show notes Last question I want to ask you, and I think you've emphasized this in some of your early responses, but that question is, what does Detroit mean to you? Hmm. Detroit is and will always be home. Detroit is (laughs) scruffy. Detroit can be dusty sometimes. Detroit can be prickly. But like the heart that this place has is unlike anywhere else in this country. And I absolutely love this place. Like, I can't get Detroit out of me. I don't think you can wash Detroit off, carve it off, cut it off. Like, it's just in you and on you all the time. And people know. (laughs) People know. They're like, there's something different about you. Like, oh, it's Detroit. (laughs) (laughs) So that's what Detroit means to me, essentially. For sure, for sure. Well, Dr. 
Markeisha Davis, I thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to come on this podcast. You dropped a lot of knowledge. On a personal note, I am very proud of who you are, the young person, the young black woman that you have become and the work that you've done. You've been an inspiration to me. I know you're like a month older than me, but you <laughs> are kind of like a, a, a big sister in a way. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you are also just a, a fantastic person. Thank you for all of the support for what you've done for me, for the support that you've shown people in my family, in particular my my beautiful wife. And mm. also thank you for just allowing me to meet your family. Your brother and sister are really cool people. And yeah, <laughs> I'm just excited for you. What's to come? I appreciate you for being on here. And thank you. Thank you for everything. And much love to you. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for the opportunity. This has been a fantastic conversation. And I can't wait to like go back and listen to the other cast tech people. <laughs> and the others, of course. <laughs> and also like, you know, really see what else comes with this program because this is fantastic and it needed to be done. I'm glad it's you doing it. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And all Detroit Wildwide podcasts are available on Apple iTunes, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other streaming platforms. So please be sure to tune in. Thank you for coming on here. Thank people for listening. On behalf of Dr. Markeisha Davis, I am Marquise Taylor. This is Detroit Worldwide, and we will holler at y'all on the other side. Peace.